0: I'm Michael Polly, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Good day to everyone. I'm delighted to be recording this show today at the studio for the Catholic Diocese of Sioux Falls. And I'm also pleased to be joined once again by my co-host Chris Moats. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Awesome. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, it's July, the season of wicked weather in South Dakota, and it seems that everyone in Sioux Falls has got a story about how their property was affected by the recent storm. And I, I think you're dealing with some collateral damage. Yeah, right? that
1: derecho came through, and it took another big limb off our silver silver maple out there in the in the yard, and. It kind of, in the wake of the storm, it feels like it left a wet towel behind too, because it's just muggy out there today. But. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've been um, sweating a lot. So yeah. Well, at least you didn't have any hail though, right? No hail.
1: Um, but uh, yeah, our prayers are certainly with uh, all those farmers and and uh, producers, producers out there who are dealing with crop damage and uh, still picking up the pieces.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of storms, uh, we're going to dive into uh, the the storm in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court. So as some of the regular listeners will recall, on June 24th, uh, Friday, June 24th, we recorded a special episode of this show to offer our immediate reaction to the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And at that point having only had a few hours uh, to digest the decision we were really just focused on the the 30,000 foot view mm-hmm. just getting out the basic information about what this court ruling did uh, what it did not do and and sort of assessing the immediate impact for the state of South Dakota and we promised at the time and we hope to deliver on it today that we're going to take more of a deep dive into the decision and you know I think we mentioned this in the last podcast is that uh, if you add in the the whole enchilada, the majority opinion, the concurring opinion, the dissenting opinion, the appendices and everything. This decision weighs in at 213 pages. And so it is quite a tome and uh, we're, we're going to comb through it and see if there's any uh, hidden gems in there, but and maybe even a few hidden lumps of coal as the case may be. So, but, uh, so first just, uh, To kind of go over for the structure of this decision. So we have the majority opinion uh, written by Justice Samuel Alito, uh, joined by Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Thomas, and Barrett. And then we have three concurring opinions, um, one by Justice Clarence Thomas, one by Justice Kavanaugh, and then one by uh, Chief Justice Roberts. And then we have the dissenting opinion by Justices uh, Sotomayor, uh, Kagan, and I'm drawing a blank. Who did I leave out? Uh, Sotomayor, Breyer. Kagan, and 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 Breyer. Who just retired? Who just retired? Yes. So, so th- that's kind of the the structure. And today uh, I, we're going to just dive mainly into the concurring the concurring opinions. You know, we the majority opinion. I think most people have. Um, the a grasp of essentially what it did it it has overturned roe versus wade and uh uh planned parenthood versus casey um uh empowering state legislatures to once again set laws on abortion for better or for worse you know as as the case may be depending on on the politics uh, of, of of the individual states and so uh so today we're going to focus more on these concurring opinions and the the first one um and and arguably the most interesting in my opinion is the one by Justice Clarence Thomas and uh, he, he dives right into it I think we're I forget how many pages this is about I think it's seven yeah just seven pages so this is not a, um, a a lengthy document and it's it's worth reading and he dives right into um, explaining you know why he has joined the majority opinion um, and 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 he dives right into the issue of the fact that the purported right to abortion, um, I'm quoting from his uh, opinion here, the purported right to abortion is not a form of liberty protected by the due process clause. And uh, so I thought just at the outset, Chris, maybe you could, uh, for our listeners who are not uh, learned in the law or uh, haven't gone to law school, uh, and for the record, uh, I'm, a, I'm somewhat of a policy wonk, but I have not gone to law school, so I, I consider myself a layman as well in trying to figure out these things. But but just talk a little <coughs> bit about this concept of of the due process clause and the controversy surrounding that.
1: Yeah, well, I want to just start with the text of the 14th Amendment, um, which is one of the Civil War amendments. In the wake of the Civil War, we, we amended uh, our Constitution with se- uh, several amendments, um, there are, let's see, I just pulled it up right here. There's five sections. So I encourage everybody just to, you know, to be a citizen, it's, you don't have to memorize the constitution, but it's good if, you know, sometimes you get those little pocket constitutions from the American Legion or wherever If you've got one of those, pull it out. Otherwise Google can be your friend here. Go look up the 14th amendment. Um, we're gonna, not going to read it all. Cause I said there are five sections, but I do just want to, um, read the first section right here. It's, uh, begins with section one. All persons born or naturalized in the United States, so think about that, that, so we're talking about including former slaves. If you were born or naturalized in the United States, subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Here's the kind of the key sentence for our purposes. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. That's an important phrase that Thomas talks about. It goes on, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction equal protection of laws. So when we talk about this legal doctrine, and it's a little obscure, Um, Thomas, he attacks it. That's sort of the heart of what he's writing about here is uh, this, he he calls it an oxymoron. It's, it's, It's a nonsensical, incoherent legal doctrine but it's called substantive due process. And it originates with uh, a judicial interpretation of this particular phrase, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So that's the key 14th Amendment phrase that Clarence Thomas um, is focusing on. And so to kind of rewind a bit, um, this we think of some of these rights. You know, we we're Americans. We love to stand on our rights, right? So we've got lots of different rights that we can point to, like the Bill of Rights, for example. That there are some very clear and very explicit rights that are enumerated in black and white in the Bill of Rights. You, if you are, you have a right to a trial by a jury. It's right there, black and white. You have a right to be, uh, you know, protected from unlawful search and seizure. Um, you have a right to free speech, free exercise, so on and so forth. Well, where do we get this constitutional right to abortion from? There are other, you know, similar sorts of things that they're not in the constitution. Like another one would be, you have a constitutional right to contraception. That's actually a decision that he mentions very specifically. It's the Griswold case back in, was it 50, 56 Griswold v. Connecticut. So, um, This legal doctrine of substantive due process um, originated from a judicial creation, really, that um, this phrase, not to be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, that this actually creates a category of affirmative rights. And at the heart of Thomas's concurrence, he first concurs with the majority opinion, says, yes, abortion is not protected by the Constitution. He then goes on to say, uh, "And we need to take a whole fresh look at the substantive due process thing. It's it's not it's it's not actually a real doctrine. So all these cases, this whole long line of cases, we need to take a fresh look at."
0: Yeah, and his uh, direct quote on that is: "The court today declines to disturb substantive due process jurisprudence generally." Or the doctrine's application in other specific contexts. Cases like Griswold versus Connecticut, 1965, right of married persons to obtain contraceptives, Lawrence versus Texas, 2003, right to engage in private consensual sexual acts, and Obergefell versus Hodges, 2015, right to same sex marriage, are not at issue. Um, So he's acknowledging that you know the 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 substance of these uh, decisions, the topics that they address were not at at issue in the Dobbs case, but he's acknowledging that these, as you said, Chris, that these cases also relied on this substantive due process um, uh, uh, interpretation, I guess, for lack of a better word to arrive at these things and and so justice Thomas is statement here has generated no small controversy because of course the way some people interpret it is, is that, Oh, you know, he's saying that um, that contraceptives should be illegal or that uh, private conceptual sexual acts should be made illegal. And of course, that's not really the point is it that it, it it's, it's not that he's prescribing what public policy should be in any of those areas so much as he's questioning whether there's a basis in the constitution for arriving at those things.
1: Exactly right. So the, you know, the substantive due process would say that um, the state may not intervene and prohibit, limit, proscribe any of those acts you've just uh, described. The Lawrence v. Texas case was a a sodomy case. Um, He's saying, so he says in future cases, he acknowledges, okay, Dobbs, we don't disturb those precedents, but it's actually because of that reason that in future cases, quote, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. This is like uh, this is like the Daisy Cutter bomb that just <laughs> got dropped on like some of the most um, seminal, the, the biggest and most socially disturbing—not just socially disturbing, but a uh, democratically disruptive. We've the court through its substantive due due process jurisprudence has removed all of these issues from the purview of social and political debate, the democratic
0: processes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's concerning to him. Yeah. As as it should be. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting parts of this, uh, concurring opinion that I was not aware of before, and this is at the bottom of uh, page six is, uh, he, he makes the point, uh, and I'm quoting from his uh, writing here, substantive due process is often wielded to disastrous ends. For instance, in Dred Scott versus Sanford, the court invoked a species of substantive due process to announce that Congress was powerless to emancipate slaves brought into the federal territories. While Dred Scott was overruled on the battlefields of the Civil War and by constitutional amendment after Appomattox, um, that overruling was purchased at the price of immeasurable human suffering. Uh, so I, that was just a fascinating little Ye- side note. I was unaware um, of the, the connection there between the, that substantive due process and the uh, the just truly awful legacy of Dred Scott versus Ye- Sanford.
1: Yeah, and that's so—just he just real briefly, Michael, he gives these kind of three points as to why substantive due process, aside from it not actually being textually correct as a textual reading— he he gives these three reasons that it's wrong. First, it removes things from the democratic process and sort of gives judges all these powers and rights that aren't properly theirs. Yeah. Second, he says, um, uh, he, he said it, it distorts other areas of constitutional jurisprudence by sort of falsely elevating certain categories of rights as having greater weight, um, or priority over others. And then third and finally, it produces disastrous ends. And so he, he references this Dred Scott case, obviously the, the the blood spilt in the civil war. And then he goes on to, um, to mention specifically the 63 million unborn lives that have been lost in this country. One of the disastrous ends of a warped legal doctrine.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, go on um, to look at a, another concurring opinion. Uh, this one by Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh, and uh, this this is a an interesting one um, where there are uh, parts of it that I I want to stand up and cheer, and then there's other parts of it that I read, uh, you know, perhaps with a little bit of uh, disappointment. Uh, but uh, I guess uh, my takeaway on this, Chris, is if if you had to just boil this uh, this whole concurring opinion down, uh, and it's uh, looks like it's about. 12 pages long, but if you had to boil it down into a soundbite, then it's the soundbite that uh, is found at the bottom of page two where (laughs) Justice Kavanaugh writes on the question of abortion. The constitution is therefore neither pro-life nor pro-choice. The constitution is neutral and leaves the issue for the people and their elected representatives to resolve through the democratic process in the states or Congress, like the numerous other difficult questions of American social and economic policy that the Constitution does not address, close quote. Um, so that's—anyway, uh, just some preliminary thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, he's—so he's, that's what the, the majority opinion says that, right? Okay, the Constitution does not protect the right to abortion— He goes back to the states. We explicitly are overruling Roe and Casey. Why does he say this then? What is his purpose in saying this? And you get it on the next page. This is page three, halfway down the page. He, He goes on to explain why he's being so painstaking to say the Constitution is neutral. He's actually drawing a line in the sand. So the majority opinion does not close the door on a particular legal argument that is made in the amicus briefs. Justice Kavanaugh is writing this concurrence to slam the door on John Finnis and Robbie George. And so here's what he says, page three, halfway down. Some amicus briefs argue that the court today should not only overrule Roe and return to a position of judicial neutrality on abortion, but should go further and hold that the constitution outlaws abortion throughout the United States. Uh, He goes on to say, no justice of this court has ever advanced that position, at least in public. Yeah. Um, I I, get, I would guess that Clarence Thomas has at least advanced it in private discussion, but that's, yeah. you know, totally speculation. Why is, so wh- what does this mean? Let's go back to the 14th Amendment real quick. Here's what the text says. No state, um, or excuse me, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. There are very, very smart lawyers that he's alluding to right here without naming them. Uh, including John Finnis, who is a mentor of Justice Gorsuch's. Yeah. Um, So maybe he's naming Gorsuch without naming Gorsuch when he says no justice has ever advanced that position. So John Finnis, Robbie George, they wrote about it in First Things not more than a year ago. um, And there was an amicus brief. I don't know if they were both signed on to that. They
0: they did, yeah. Um, And, And just for our listeners who aren't, uh, familiar uh, Robert George, uh, professor of law at Princeton University. Jurisprudence. And, uh, so jurisprudence. he's, yep, it's yeah. not a
1: law school. I think he's teaching in their, you know, politics oh, or whatever department,
0: oh, undergrad. Good, good correction. Yeah. And then uh, John Finnis, I believe, is um, professor emeritus at, um, I want to say either Cambridge or Oxford, but Oxford. Uh, don't, it's Oxford. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, so they are arguing that, the unborn should be regarded as persons person. protected under the Fourteenth uh, Amendment. Precisely. Yeah. So, um, and they are they
1: they're making the case not just on the text itself, but they're bringing in the history. You know what is what does this term mean at the time that the the, the amendment was passed, and so they're bringing in this so the the whole history, history and tradition of this country. And Kavanaugh is just making abundantly clear. I am not going to entertain that in the future. Yeah. So there goes your fifth vote. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And we don't know where the other justices would be anyways, but, um, that's, you know, that's one of the big things that he's doing in this concurrence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, there, there is a, uh, and, and as I alluded to earlier, there are some parts of, uh, you know, this decision that do make me, uh, want to cheer and, uh, Uh, One of them is found on uh, page five. Um, Sorry, I should have called it a decision. This is a concurring opinion, but um, Justice Kavanaugh writes, the Constitution does not grant the nine unelected members of this court the unilateral authority to rewrite the Constitution to create new rights and liberties based on our own moral or policy views. As Justice Rehnquist stated, this court has not, quote, been granted a roving commission either by the founding fathers or by the framers of the 14th amendment to strike down laws that are based upon notions of policy or or morality suddenly found acceptable by a majority of this court close quote. And, uh, I, I loved the, uh, the quote of justice Rehnquist because boy, if ever there was a man who fought a lonely battle for many years for judicial restraint, uh, it'd be justice Rehnquist. So
1: is the constitution a living document? Yeah. Uh, I, he's no, it's not. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's got fixed meaning and the judges are bound by, yeah. um, they don't get to alter it at their own whim.
0: Yeah. I I think, uh, justice, the, the late justice Antonin Scalia, if I recall correctly, was asked once, uh, in a uh, I think it was a media interview, you know, is the constitution a living document? And his response was it's dead, dead, dead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is, which is why there's a process baked into the constitution for amending it. You know, we yeah. can amend it through the democratic processes. Yeah. You know, I, uh, just to, cause you mentioned, uh, Rehnquist there, I think it, it's maybe also interesting to our listeners to point out that Rehnquist lays a lot of the intellectual groundwork for the majority opinion In a 1997 case on physician-assisted suicide, Washington v. Glucksburg, it was also a substantive due process, 14th Amendment case, in in which Dr. Glucksburg, several other physicians were arguing that... So at at that time, the state of Washington had a law that banned physician-assisted suicide. Um, And they sought to overturn that law by arguing there's a constitutional substantive due process, 14th Amendment right to take one's own life and to help another person do that. And Rehnquist, within the context of the substantive due process doctrine, so he didn't overturn the doctrine, but he tightened it up a bit. And he essentially said that, no, we can't just create these rights out of whole cloth. They've got to be located within the history and tradition of this country. We actually have to be able to give witness to them within our constitution, constitutional tradition that we have. And so that's what the majority, that's what Alito really relied upon in unpacking. Abortion isn't there. Yeah. And then he does the whole stare decisis analysis, which is of course very important also. Yeah. Um, but, you know, kudos to Rehnquist 25 years uh, after this decision, it becomes very important for um, overturning Roe versus Wade.
0: Yeah. Well, great. Well, let's uh, dive into a, a third uh, concurring opinion, the, this one by Chief Justice John Roberts. And um, I guess in in many ways, uh, reading through this, this is sort of the most muddled and, and most disappointing part uh, of the decision for me. Um, I, I think to kind of boil it down to its essence, uh, the Chief Justice makes an argument that um, the court should have upheld uh the Mississippi law. In fact, Justice Roberts does, um, this is a little bit confusing to to some listeners perhaps, but uh, the the court's ruling in favor of upholding Mississippi's pro, pro-life law uh, banning abortions after 15 weeks gestation was a 6-3 majority. Uh, so, so Chief Justice Roberts joined in um, a 6-3 majority to uphold the mississippi law but he did not participate in the five-member majority that decided to overrule roe versus wade and casey and the gist of his argument is that he feels that it wasn't necessary to directly uh confront the the precedence of roe versus and and casey that uh the mississippi law could be upheld merely by discarding the viability standard that was created in planned Parenthood versus casey um, and, and going no further. And so one of the, the ironies of his concurring opinion is that he actually, uh, in so many words, accuses the other justices of, uh, of essentially being, uh, kind of judicial activists, you know, that they went further, uh, than was necessary to adjudicate the, uh, the case. And, um, one, one, uh, this is a quote from the first page of Justice Roberts, uh, uh, concurring opinion he says the court nonetheless rules t- today the court rules for mississippi uh, by doing just that i would take a more measured course i agree with the court that the viability line established by Roe and casey should be discarded under a straightforward stare decisis analysis that line never made any sense our abortion precedents describe the right at issue as a woman's right to choose to terminate her pregnancy. That right should therefore extend far enough to ensure a reasonable opportunity to choose, but need not extend any further. Certainly not all the way to viability and close quote. So uh, it's, it, it seems like, uh, it, and it's really hard to decipher uh, this opinion, Chris, because it's almost like, on the one hand, he is feeling like uh, the doctrine of stare decisis—you know, uh, let the decision stand—should uh, preclude the court from from going any further than it needs to. And yet, in a certain sense, he's uh, abandoning that doctrine by throwing out the the viability standard that was created by Casey. So it's it's almost like, like he's saying that um, you know we. I'm willing to abandon stare decisis a little bit, but but not go as far as the other five justices. It, it's, it's really a muddled opinion in my estimation.
1: Yeah, and Justice Alito deals with it. Um, you know, that's how these decisions work is they get a chance to, they circulate their drafts internally and they get a chance to sort of uh, play off one another and respond to the arguments that are raised by other judges. Um, so Justice Alito actually responds to this Uh, argument raised by the chief justice at page, let's see, 76 in sort of the main opinion. He says, so Justice Roberts, he says, nope, not viability, but we didn't need a different standard. Essentially, she needs a reasonable opportunity to get an abortion. So here's Alito's response. Even if the court ultimately adopted the new rule suggested uh, by the concurrence, we would be faced with the difficult problem of spelling out what it means. He, essentially, we're trading—we'd be trading one standard for another, and mm. this new standard that you're suggesting, we would—we would just need more cases to actually spell what that means. Yeah, it's actually um, more honest, direct, and in the end, less trouble for us to just completely do away with a, a decision that had no basis in the Constitution to begin with. Yeah. It's less trouble to just do away with Roe rather than kick the can down the road and create more work for everybody by sort of articulating this new ambiguous standard of reasonableness.
0: Yeah. I mean, the the chief justice doesn't actually use this language, but in effect, what he's saying is that now is not the right time to revisit the Roe and Casey precedents. And yet... um, there's all these other cases that were that were pending for review in the legal system, cases that would uh, just uh, you know ban abortion when a heartbeat can be detected and at other times. and so um, it, it's a it's an odd uh, thing that he's saying because he surely knew that it was inevitable that this would have to be confronted uh, at some point. So um, yeah, it's it's a little uh, bit of a puzzling uh, mishmash, and uh, I'm not quite sure what it means about where the Chief Justice. Uh, may come down on, uh, future abortion cases. Um, so, um, well, it's, uh, I think we're, we're going to continue to, uh, look at this decision in, uh, future days and weeks. There's, uh, a lot to, uh, to digest as we ponder the implications, uh, both for the country and for South Dakota. Um, so, um, but for right now, that's all we have and, uh, until next time live well.